Hey everybody, Oscar Bronx here. This is the um, hardest thing I've ever tried to put into words, so please bear with me. I had considered just, you know, putting this off to give me a chance to think about it, but I decided, no, just do it now, you know, without overthinking it. Just let it come out as is. Like my girlfriend says, it's got to be genuine, honest testimony. Okay, so here goes. Like I told you last night, Mickey called me and told me he's got important new information about my situation and that I have to come down to Norfolk, Virginia for it. So early this morning, I hop in my rental car and tool down there. Now, it's about a six-hour drive for me, so I have a long while by myself to just think. And I'm having a hard time imagining that I can come to a satisfactory conclusion to this forgiveness quest I'm on. Falco hasn't changed in all these years, and she won't now. I could make the most detailed argument possible. I could compile a bill of indictment of her abuses and cruelties so long that any reasonable person would find her guilty. But it wouldn't matter. She will never admit wrongdoing. She's incapable of even acknowledging, much less confessing, having ever done anything that she should ask forgiveness for. Her narcissism is written into her DNA. So that's not going to happen. To paraphrase Popeye, she is what she is, and that's all that she is. And I think I ought to be able to see her in her current state, you know, impoverished, unhealthy, stuck in a dump of human misery, basically waiting to die. And I ought to feel sorry for her. Hell, for any human being in such a state, not just my mother, right? I mean, just witnessing all that ought to make this sense of forgiveness just wash over me, right? I mean, right? But it doesn't. I think tomorrow, when I get back from Norfolk, I ought to just go to the nursing home, walk up to her, and say, Mom, you were a horrible mother, you screwed up my childhood, and you made it hard for me to ever have a normal relationship with a woman, but what's done is done, and I forgive you. I mean, I knew going into this that all this Forgiveness I'm seeking isn't just some intellectual thing. It's not just an idea. It's an emotion. And it has to come from the heart. It's not enough to just say it. On the other hand, it couldn't hurt either. Maybe it'll prove to be a kind of incantation, you know, like in witchcraft, a magic that makes everything right. Nah. My luck, I'd end up like Mickey Mouse in The Sorcerer's Apprentice, only the sorcerer never shows up to fix my error. I'm just afraid I'd feel so phony doing it that it would just jinx the whole deal or my mother would respond with some falcoism so snide and hateful that it would set me back even farther. I'm even starting to feel that it was a bad idea to go back to New York to see her, that there was nothing to be gained by it. I call my girlfriend. She encourages me to keep at it. She's praying for me and that at some point I'll have a breakthrough. And I hang up and I almost feel mad at her. I mean, I lived a pretty good life after I left the Falco Five and went out on my own. No, I never forgave Falco, but I lived a reasonably decent, honest life. I never abused anybody the way I was abused. I tried to be kind to people, all that. Why can't that be enough? I know why. She's right. I gotta keep on trying. So on I drive. I have no idea why Mickey's calling me down to Norfolk, but I don't press him. At this point, I'm just hoping for a good surprise. I can't think of what might be in Norfolk, except 
Maybe he found Plato, or maybe somebody who claims to be my father, or brother, or cousin, or whatever. And of course, my innate skepticism wonders if it could be a hoax. You know, some scam artist finds that I have the money to hire a private investigator. He might pose as some long-lost family member to squeeze a few bucks out of me. But nah, Mickey's way too wise to fall for that. It's not that. Plus, I've always liked for people to tell me stories their own way, however they see fit to, so that's how I'm treating Mickey with this. Just go on and see what happens. Anyway, so I finally reach Norfolk a little after noon. The address he gives me leads me to this old housing subdivision on the outskirts of town, probably built in, I don't know, the 1950s, maybe early 60s. And I see Mickey's car parked on the street in front of this little green house. And the house has a garage, and the garage door is open. And Mickey's standing in the garage with a couple of elderly people. Otherwise, the garage is empty. So I park and get out, and I walk up the driveway and into the garage. Mickey introduces me to the man and the woman, Charles and Jacqueline. And they hug my neck, and they've got tears in their eyes, especially the lady. I mean, she's about boo-hooing. So I say, all right, Mick, what's so important that you couldn't tell me over the phone? And Mickey looks at me real serious, and he says, Oscar, I'm going to tell you a little story, and I need you to just listen, all right? When I'm done, you can ask questions. I say, all right, Mick, hit me. And he says, back in 1963, there was a young couple that were just getting started in life. The young man's name was Charles and he worked in the Merchant Marine as an A.B. His wife was named Veronica. They lived in this house. Veronica got pregnant, and since she had family to help her out, Charles went to sea to earn a living. He planned to make it back home by the time she was due to deliver their first child. Well, Veronica was almost full term when she made a fateful decision. She had always loved the movies and theater, and so she decided she wanted to go to New York because she had never been there before. You know, go see the sights, take in a Broadway play. And she wanted to do it right away because she figured once she had the baby and they were raising a family, she wouldn't have the opportunity. She had a lot of moxie, this girl, to go on a trip like that with her due date only a couple of weeks away. Well, Veronica had a younger sister who she was real close to named Jacqueline. Well, Jacqueline, she thought it would be exciting, too, so they get together and take a bus up to New York. And Veronica and Jacqueline go around, see the sights, go to Broadway, take in a show, all that stuff. And they get in a cab, and Veronica asks the cabbie if they make any movies in New York or do they only do that in Hollywood. And the cabbie says he knows where some famous director is making a movie in New York right now, and they're shooting in Brooklyn, in fact. So... He takes them there. They go over the Brooklyn Bridge and he takes them to this place where there's a pier jutting out into the harbor. And the film crew is out on the end of the pier shooting a scene. So Veronica and Jacqueline go a little ways onto the pier and they stand at the railing to watch. Well, after a while, the crew takes a break and the director walks up to the girls and engages them in conversation. And he says to Veronica, Young lady... You have what it takes to be in pictures. That face, the voice, the personality, the whole package. And Veronica laughs and pats her belly and says, Even with this package, 
You can't very well be a movie star when you're pregnant or raising children, can you? And the director says, Young lady, have you ever heard of Renee Falconetti? Veronica says, No, who's she? And he says, Only the greatest actress of all time. She was a 35-year-old mother when she became a star in the movies. As a director, I believe that mothers make the best actresses. They have experienced both suffering and love in a way that cannot be faked. And then he kind of pats her belly and he says, If you ever want to be a star of stage and screen, this child will be your lucky charm. And as he starts to walk away, he turns back and he says, If it's a boy, you should name him Oscar. And she says, Why Oscar? And her sister slaps her playfully on the arm and says, After the Academy Awards, silly. Now as Veronica and Jacqueline are walking back to the cab, a young woman working in the film crew runs up to them and says, Excuse me, can I get your name and address? The director would like to send a gift for the new baby. And so she gives her the information. And then the cabbie takes Veronica and Jacqueline back to Grand Central, and they take the bus back to Norfolk. Once back at the house, Veronica's tired, and Jacqueline takes the car to run an errand for her. When Jacqueline gets back, she finds the garage door open. She starts to drive the car in, but she sees something on the garage floor. She gets out. She can't believe her eyes. It's Veronica. She's been stripped of her clothes. Her belly is cut open. There's blood everywhere. The baby's gone. At this point in Mickey's story, the old woman Jacqueline is hugging the old man and she's sobbing uncontrollably. And Mickey says, Oscar, the young woman in the film crew who asked Veronica for her name and address, that was Falco. Falco is not your mother. She's your mother's killer. And I'm standing there, not really comprehending, like, what? And just then, the old woman wipes her eyes with a tissue and she opens this little pocketbook and she takes out an old photograph and she shows it to me. She says, this is Veronica, your mom. I took this picture that day on the pier. I can't believe what I'm looking at. It shows a young, pretty, pregnant woman leaning against the pier railing. Behind her is the harbor and ships. She's wearing a long black coat over a nice conservative dress, and she's got this shoulder-length black hair, and she's wearing red lipstick, and she's smiling. She's beautiful, full of life. But it's weird because it still doesn't seem real to me until the old woman says, Veronica used to have a little music box. Whenever you kicked a lot or seemed out of sorts, she'd turn it on and hold it against her belly. She said it calmed you down. That's what she was doing when the director met us. And then she says, When I found her here on this floor, she was still alive. She spoke to me. Her last words were, Find my child. Tell him I love him. Ask him to please forgive me. Okay, by then, I'm crying and I can hardly talk. I say, forgive her? For what? And Jacqueline says, for not protecting you, I guess. She takes my face in her hands and she looks up into my eyes and she says, your mama loved you more than anything in the whole world. 
I'm so sorry we couldn't find you. We tried and tried. I'm so glad you're finally home. And so, I guess you can see why Mickey didn't tell me this over the phone. He knew that I might feel such a rage at Falco that I might go straight to the nursing home and murder her. And I did feel that rage inside me. But it got overwhelmed by the love that that old man and woman showed me as they hugged me and cried with me. That woman, my Aunt Jacqueline. And Charles. My father. My family. I spent hours getting to know my real family. About five years after my mother died, Charles got remarried. He and his new wife had six kids, and I got to meet two of them. The others had moved out of state, but I'll get to meet all of my, what do you call them, stepbrothers and sisters, half-brothers and sisters, ah, just brothers and sisters. I'll get to meet them soon enough. Looking forward to it. And my Aunt Jacqueline, I met her family too. I've got three cousins by way of her, and they've got kids, and what lovely, lovely people. All these years, I've had a family, and I didn't even know it. You know, my dad and Aunt Jacqueline took me to see my mother's grave. I laid some flowers on it, and I, I sat there a good long while, staring at her photo, and then at the headstone with her name, Veronica, on it, and at the beautiful little church cemetery with all the old family names, even my grandparents' names. I wish I could say that this was like some miraculous healing, you know, learning the truth, being with my true family, but, man, I tell you, you ever had your life turned upside down and inside out in a matter of minutes? It's tough to take. Damn near impossible. Fifty-seven years of living just yanked away. My father and my aunt, of course, wanted me to stay the night at one of their places, but I decided to get a hotel room in town. I needed some time alone to process things, I guess. It was a hard night. I tried my best to just accept all this as a blessing, you know, the way my Aunt Jacqueline described it, but I couldn't stop this anger and resentment and regret from crashing into my head like, I don't know, like waves in a storm crashing on a beach. I couldn't help thinking how Falco, I mean, not only did she murder my mother and kidnap me, she rubbed my face in it from the time I was six years old, and maybe before, wearing my mother's clothes, pretending she was Veronica, and then telling me to my face that I was born by Caesarian, virtually taunting me with a confession? And I, I felt guilty, too. I mean, why didn't I ever put two and two together? I patted myself on the back for years, thinking that I had learned to read tells by studying Falco and the others. And I couldn't even see this when it was staring me in the face all along? Why didn't I waste them all when I had the chance? When I saw what they were doing to Laura that day, I could have. I could have made sure my mother... God damn it. I mean, Falco didn't have the chance to turn Lenny around with her mind-bending juju. Then he and Plato and I could have ended it all. But no. I ran away, and the deep regret I carried with me for years, this suspicion that Hans had used Laura's babysitting gig to get tiny little children to molest and use in his porn movies, and that I could have and should have done something about it, but I didn't. I ran away and started my own life, 
patting myself on the back that I never did to others what was done to me. All those years, that evil, evil bitch of a devil deprived me of my mother's love that was there for me from the beginning and deprived a beautiful, good young woman of the chance to raise her child in her loving arms. She made me loathe Mother's Day when I should have and could have loved it, filled me with distrust of women and mothers when I should have been filled with love, and I was on a quest to try to forgive this this demon that just yesterday dared to rub my face in it again, saying that because I believe she had genuine motherly love in her, that I had nominated her for a Lifetime Achievement Award? What? I was filled with just fury and rage. And man, let me tell you, I had the urge to just jump in my car in the middle of the night and drive up to that nursing home and kill, kill Falco. And around about four in the morning, after not sleeping a wink, I get up, and I go out, and I get in my car. And I pull the photo of my real mother, Veronica, out of my pocket, and I look at it. And I start to drive. But I don't drive back to New York. I go to the church where my mother's buried, and I go out to her grave, and I lay down on it. And I let myself calm down. I lay on my back, looking up in the night sky. And then I think of something my Aunt Jacqueline told me. Something that, until I'm lying on my mother's grave in the dark night, I didn't even really understand. She told me that all those years that I thought had been stolen from me, my mother, Veronica, was up in heaven watching over me. All those years, she was with me. It didn't seem real when Jacqueline told me during the day. But lying there on her grave, looking up into the night sky and all those stars, somehow it made sense. Somehow, it seemed real. And only then did my anger and guilt and all fade away. By the time dawn broke, I was feeling pretty peaceful. So I called Mickey and I meet him for breakfast at a diner. I want to see if he'd learned anything else. I got to thank my old buddy Mickey a more skilled and bulldog investigator you will not find. I mean, you gotta realize, I never even knew the real names of the Falco Five, even though I grew up among them. And yet, not only was he able to find Falco in that nursing home, he was able to find the man I knew as Hans, who had finally gotten convicted for child molestation and kiddie porn sometime in the early 90s, and was murdered in prison a few years after that. But Hans left a trail of his activities, including his memoir, which Mickey found on the dark web. He called it I-M-M. You know, that movie that Falco got the name Hans from for him. Anyway, Mickey said that in the memoir, Hans wrote that it was Falco's idea to follow my mother down to Norfolk, but she brought Hans and Lenny and Laura to help her, everybody but Plato, who hadn't joined the group yet. It's hard to imagine, isn't it? All those people, Falco, Hans, Lenny, Laura, all of them knew how I was brought into the world. All of them were culpable in the murder of my mother, and yet not a single one of them cracked open with the truth, even accidentally, all those years when I was growing up, 
twisted psychodegenerates, every one of them, able to look at me day after day, year after year, and not have the basic human compassion needed to set things right. The cult mind is a horrific thing. I guess that brings me back to the whole notion of forgiveness. These were broken people. Falco took advantage of their brokenness, and so did Hans. But maybe even Falco and Hans were broken in some way. But forgive them? Maybe Laura. Possibly Lenny, though that's a long shot. Hans and Falco? I'm not there. I don't know if I'll ever be. I hope nobody pushes me to do it. Mickey found records of a woman he thinks might have been Laura who died of AIDS in the late 1980s. He thinks it was her in part because there was this large man, unidentified, who was by her side and who committed suicide when she died. Big dumb guy who would sing to her on her deathbed. And word was, he had a great voice, just like Lenny. Mickey also found a missing person report for a teenage boy from the Bronx that he thinks might have been the guy I knew as Plato. Kid went missing around 1967 when he was 14, which would have been around the time Plato joined Falco's group. The kid's parents had been taking him to a shrink for some kind of identity disorders, and in fact had him committed. But that was right around the time they were shutting down a lot of those institutions and letting all the crazies loose on the streets. As for what happened to Plato after he helped me escape the Falco Five in 1980, who knows? Mickey didn't find anything. I cared for Plato. He was nuts, but he was good and kind. No way he would have joined in on the kind of mayhem that was my birth. I wish I knew his real name. I guess some things you never get closure on. There's a lot more I could go into about these characters, but I'd rather concentrate on my real family instead from now on out. Here's the kicker, though, for the Falco Five. You're not going to believe this. Hell, I had a hard time believing it myself when I heard. While I was with Mickey at the diner this morning, I got a call from Dr. Jerry. The woman I knew erroneously as my mother for 50-some-odd years, the infamous Falco, is no more. Apparently, she started some serious trouble at the nursing home after I left, to the extent that they had to put her back in her bed and apply the restraints again. And Mrs. Little, remember her? Falco's roommate? Well, Falco was talking all kinds of trash to her, cussing her out, just annoying the heck out of her. And so Mrs. Little decided to just play that little music box. Over and over and over again until Falco had a massive stroke and died. I told Dr. Jerry to box up Veronica's coat and dress and music box, and I'll pick it up. So I call my girlfriend and tell her, and you know what she says? She says, yes, to my proposal of marriage. My friends, yours truly, Oscar Bronx, is getting married. Not only that, but we've already decided on a date. May 10th, 2020. Mother's Day. Huh? How about that? Mother's Day. And I'll tell you what. Starting this Mother's Day, I will celebrate that holiday like you won't believe. And when people ask me about my mother, I'm going to tell them. I had the greatest mother ever. She loves me, and I love her. And I think back. You know, if you listen to the very first episode of this podcast, 
When I told about that incident when I was in my apartment in New York, asking if that was all there was to life, and I heard the voice say, Go south. Remember that? Go south. And I went south to Alabama, where I met the woman I'm about to marry. Well, I'm just thinking that whatever or whoever told me to go south must have known I'd end up here in Norfolk. I mean, that's south, right? South of New York, for sure. I used to think that voice was mine. Now I'm thinking it was my mother's. My real mother. Veronica. (laughs) You know, that kind of tickles me. I may talk like a New York Yankee, but I've been a Southerner all along. Didn't even know it. Maybe I'll learn to say y'all the right way someday. Hey, I'm not promising. If it comes, it comes. If not, I'll just let it tickle my heart when my girlfriend, uh, excuse me, my wife, says it. And she says it a lot. And hey, I really want to thank you for coming along with me on this trip, listening to me yap. It's nice to have someone to talk to. All right, I guess I'll sign off for now. This has been a New York Yankee in the heart of Dixie. Brought to you by Little White Cabin. I'm your host, Oscar Bronx. Check us out at littlewhitecabin.com. As my old friend Manny Conrad would say, see you in the funny papers. Peace. Oh, and hug your mother. Do it now.